at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Stuff Day. Yeah, I don't know what week it is. Uh, second week of baseball. Yeah. Fun things happening around the world. Sure, that's what we'll go with. We'll go with that. Other things we could probably refer to this as. Um, oh, uh, State of North Carolina wants to destroy the ACC day. I was thinking that I wasn't gonna go with it, but uh, your, you know, your website, so we'll, we can ride with it. I say let's, let's let's stay out of the messy part of the politics and, and just get to the, the the brass tacks of it, and that is, State of North Carolina, instead of dealing with issues that the state has around infrastructure, education, and other items. Um, has decided to propose a bill that if the ACC boycotts the state again, they will try to forcibly remove UNC and NC State from the conference effective immediately. Um, a Well, I, I think it was absolutely effective whenever the media um, contract <laughs> expired, so like 2020 or whatever. That's silly. Yeah. That's silly. Um, it's super petulant. It's like unbelievably petulant. <laughs> well, it's, it, it's also like... In some ways, it, it, it kind of shows, like, okay, that's also probably their, um, how they view freedom of speech. It is, is, oh, if you're going to boycott it, then we're just going to try to financially suck you dry. Yeah, my, so my, my first thought, aside from, like, the actual political implications, which I think if you follow John or I for any period of time, you probably know where we stand on it. Um, just from, like, a, a, what this would do to North Carolina, it just, it seems very counterproductive, because... Basically, the the whole reason HB two or one of the main reasons HB two got got repealed, quote unquote, very unquote, um, based on what the replacement is, um, is was you know spearheaded by the economic issues that arose from losing the NBA All Star Game, losing the ACC tournament, or potentially losing the ACC tournament down the road, um, losing NCAA tournament bids. Like there were a lot of events that were being taken away from the state. So if you the offices for multiple Fortune 500 companies that were that were about to move down there. Right, and then, I mean, just thinking about sports, like you have, uh, I think uh, you brought up in your, in your piece today, the ACC headquarters are in Greensboro. Um, I mean, you could look at uh, uh, ESPN has their SEC network headquarters down there. Um, so it, it, there's just a lot of stuff. Um, so if you're going to pass a bill that will force uh, NC State and UNC to leave the ACC if certain conditions aren't met, and they actually do it. A, there's no... It, so, so, like, let's say in some weird hypothetical. hypothetical world that UNC and NC State went to the Big Ten. And that and that is that is requiring however many university presidents to be okay with signing off in these schools that got kicked out, effectively kicked out of their old league because they wouldn't kowtow to a super discriminatory bill. So you're, you're signing, you're having, you're saying that Jim Delaney and the Big Ten presidents would, would be okay with that, which is uh, an obstacle. And then you're going to have your flagship school go to a conference that isn't going to kowtow to your state as much, like near anywhere in the vicinity of what the ACC does. The ACC, while it's pretty widespread now, is still a very North Carolina conference. UNC would be, a, I mean, it'd be a nice basketball school, but it would be a, a, an also-ran in terms of influence in the Big Ten at best. Like the Big Ten's never going to go send anything big to Charlotte. Well, and that, and that um, also goes back to realignment game theory that, that's been going ar- around for, you know, seven years now, is that, you know, Texas won't go anywhere unless they can be top dog in the league. UNC doesn't go anywhere. Duke doesn't go anywhere. Virginia doesn't go anywhere because they can't find the influence that they have um, in the ACC elsewhere. I mean, it's... You're right. There are a lot of implications here. Obviously, the biggest implication is if forced to boycott again, the effects that it would have on, um, well, the effects that any bill or discriminatory bill would have on, on those individuals. Uh, but beyond that, since 
I, I, I'm trying to, to keep politics out of this for, for the sake of, of, of our split listenership. Um, but I, I, I would say that um, UNC and NC State being forced to leave the league um, for this reason w- would be would be incredibly nonsensical and, and I don't I don't think this bill really has enough weight behind it but to see the self-important you know idiots in, in, in the state legislature talk about it um, in, in some of the articles today and the responses to it um, is, is again pretty laughable that they think that they're 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 serving anybody you know kind of kind of a, a final warning with, with, with this yeah it definitely seems like a like a, a muscle flex more than an actual legitimate thing because it, I, I think in a lot of ways it would be very self-defeating and you'd be imposing the same restrictions that you were going to get from a boycott um, in a lot of ways and you're making grand assumptions over um, how what other conference is going to pick up those schools versus you know weighing the uh, political ramifications of doing so in light of what would be uh, you know essentially a kick out of these from the ACC's uh, point of view and that is all to say that i don't think this will happen like a if only because i don't know the, the the possibilities of this bill actually passing and then i'm unfortunately not all that uh i don't really trust the acc to put a ton of pressure now because uh just for political reasons with how stuff with like bills being repealed always works like it a lot of things are done for face value and i don't really think the acc is interested in making this a long-term thing yeah. i was actually kind of surprised they went as far as they did the first time um so yeah agreed agreed and we'll leave it at that before we start drifting into murkier territory <laughs> one article that i really uh, enjoyed today there's a couple i really enjoyed today but one in particular um ari gilberg wrote about uh the pro style spread and how that could mean that babers is actually kind of switching his philosophy philosophy a bit on the fly and involving tight ends uh, he focused in on ravy and pierce and i agree um, i think pierce um, is definitely you know someone who is kind of a flex tight end wide receiver. I don't really know enough about his blocking capabilities, um, but it definitely seems like he is um, very much that type of you know flex athlete, very fast for the tight end spot, but tall enough to create mismatches. Um, you know on the outside, he's he's one of, of several players in this year. I think you'd add you know Adley Noisy and uh, Jamal Custis into this as well. Similar builds are around six four, two forty, things like that. Um, I think that, that where, you know, Ari's piece kind of hits on is that you know, this isn't just something that we can utilize in the red zone where Syracuse has struggled lately, at least to get into the end zone. It's um, this kind of changes, this changes what we've known about Babers' offense, and maybe Babers has even known about his offense, but he seems to be very quickly embracing it. And, then we, and again, you know, you look at this year's, we brought in two tight ends. We already have a tight end, and uh, Gabe Horan signed for, well, not signed, but committed for next year so far and it wouldn't surprise me if we were looking for more players in that mold so uh dan i don't know if you got to read it or or, or at least think about this topic um especially as it not just pertains to syracuse but the rest of uh college football yeah i read it uh, before we started recording um it definitely is interesting um a like you said it could just be that you know pierce could end up just playing uh more of like a, a flanker role as a you know, more of a pure receiver, and we do have a couple guys like that. Obviously, we brought up Pestis and Noisy last week, um, and they are like the long-fabled like weapons that we haven't quite figured out yet for years. Um, but I think, if anything, it, it's it. There's a lot of uh, there's still a lot of intrigue with what Babers Babers Ball is because um, last year he kind of put together what he could on the fly, um, but he's kind of been doing that since he took over uh, as a head coach at all. I mean, he's only had two years in each of his first two spots. He's going into year two here. Um, he's never, you know, gotten to fully flush out what his ideal offense is via recruiting and whatnot. Uh, so obviously the fact that he went and got a guy like Pierce, um, and you know, not that Syracuse can be turning down too many, you know, four-star prospects that were former SEC commits, you know, wherever they are on the field. But the fact that he went as hard as he did after a tight end like Pierce, uh, does make you think that, you know, he would have a, a reason to, to pick him up in a, and, uh, you know, values using him and, and probably shared that with Pierce. Cause I don't know why he would come here if he thought he was going to catch four balls in his career. Um, but uh, if you look at like, what Baylor's done, like they've had uh, it, it, throughout the years, like when they, they've changed parts of their offense to suit the, uh, the 
uh, talent that they've had on the field, even within seasons, um, due to injury or whatever. Uh, so, uh, totally from that tradition, it wouldn't shock me if, if year by year we see, you know, some pretty uh, serious wrinkles from, you know, based on who Babers has added to the team and, and who's emerged as, as a talent. Uh, so last year's team, you know, obviously played very much on on taking the ball to uh, uh, Edatawo and and not really running the ball because that was never all that effective and it, it just kind of did what it did well and and got moved the ball pretty pretty effectively um, for the most part. So there's no guarantee that's what the 2017 teams gonna look like and there's no guarantee that's what the you know the 2020 team if if we get that far with Babers will you know odds are that won't look anything like his first year team. It's kind of fun, you know. I, I think that not being able to bank on what this team looks like could be its biggest advantage. Um, I, I think a lot of folks believe that they, they know and, and believe that they, and I, I think, you know, self-included a little bit, we feel like we know what we're going to see. But, yeah, like you just hit on, this Babers offense was not necessarily a shell of itself last year, but was definitely not something that was optimized for what Babers wants to do. Obviously, having someone like Etatawo helped speed along part of that progression. Dungey's obviously a great athlete, or Phillips is, is a super fast guy and is able to plug in, but you know he's also not your typical slot receiver for what um, Babers has done at previous jobs, and, and, and to be honest, what, what a lot of spread offenses have done um, in the past, that's not a bad thing, but it definitely goes to show that uh, there was some talent on the roster and, and guys who were adaptable and, and flexible for what they could do. Um, but yeah, this year is, is going to usher in, you know, part one of, of what should be a gradual, um, hopefully move to, to a fully operational Babers offense. Yeah. That's not to say that things are going to change like super drastically. Like, like, I mean, as I, as I was saying, I thought like, well, you know, people might think that this means that they're just going to be constantly cycling through systems. Like we basically have been since past the Loney, um, because I'm not quite sure that we've had the same offense two years in a row going back that far. Uh, yeah, but, I think, oh, I'm going to go with maybe 04. 03, 04 was probably the most recent, and, and that's pushing it. Yeah, I mean, because, like, Marone basically changed his offense every year. Schaefer kind of had to change his offense every year. Um, Robinson, I don't know that he ran an offense. Um, not one of note. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not one of note. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that will we'll obviously always be an up-tempo spread, Um but like there are individual wrinkles, I think that that could be added based on talent and based on uh, what Babers, you know, thinks can be exploited. Um, but I mean, I, I think the the mechanics of like the offense moving at the pace it moves and whatnot are going to be the same. But um, it will be interesting to see how he how he exploits the talent on the roster. And and Pierce is definitely one of those noteworthy guys, being you know obviously one of the highest rated recruits in the class and and being kind of a different type of athlete than we have uh, littered across the roster currently. Indeed, yeah, and you look at him compared, I mean, size-wise, especially just compared to the other receivers um, that came in, and we had, what, five wideouts. All of them were kind of in that, I don't think any of them were over 200 pounds, and, and so obviously, you know, Pierce outweighs them by a bunch, so does Custis, so does Adley Noisy. To be honest, I'd like St- Steve Ishmael, um, another guy who might not necessarily fit the typical mold. Um, I'm very curious to see, and we've talked about this before, I'm very curious to see how his route running translates to being kind of the deep outside option since I feel like he's done that on and off. Um, he didn't really do it a ton last year without Atawo being out there. Um, he was running more intermediate routes, but um, in his first two years, I felt like he was much more of a deep option. So it's going to be interesting to see what he can do over the top since he's not like an exceptionally fast guy. Um, he's just a guy with really good hands and a really good route running ability um, and, and, and some underrated uh, blocking capabilities, to be honest. Um, He's a guy who, you know, I, I, I'm anxious to see if he can if he can kind of make lemons out of lemonade the same way that, that Edatawo did. Obviously, Edatawo was, a, I think, a little bit faster than, than Ishmael but a little bit bigger. But overall, like, not someone who had amazing hands um, or amazing leaping ability but just managed to put himself in the right position and always seemed to identify. And this is on Dungey, too. Able to identify... Um, Single coverage and, and, and some some mismatches in the uh, in the secondary. So I, I think that the onus will very much be on um, Ishmael to do the same this year. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think uh, you know I don't know that we're going to get the same production that we did, did out of Atatawa last year, just because that was such a crazy year. But um, 
I mean, Ishmael, going back to two or three years ago, like he has really, really good ability in one-on-one matchups, um, and just really good body control. So I, I'm, I'm looking forward. I mean, I said it last week. I think we're gonna get a pretty big year out of him. Um, and you know, he, he's kind of like the silent, like you know, the silent killer on this offense, where he's pretty proven. Um, even if he didn't have like the huge year last year, who knows what he would have done had we not had Atatabo on the roster. I don't think that the offense would have been as good because Abba was just so prolific, but there's a chance he would have put up um, pretty crazy numbers himself, and, and hopefully as as the the uh, wide receiver one here and the the main outside guy, he can uh, step into those shoes. I'm pretty confident that we'll get a, a really nice year out of Steve. I think he's a, a really pretty well-rounded receiver. Same here. I actually think, um, you know, as much as Etatawa was the one setting records last year, um, Ishmael might actually have the the higher pro prospects. I, I think both of them have, have, have a good chance to make it in the NFL, but I think I think Steve might be evaluated. I haven't looked too in-depth into the 2018 um, scouting reports, but I do feel like uh, people are already pretty high on Ishmael and what he can do um, at the pro level. Yeah, I mean, like you said, he's, he's probably not as fast, but he's I think he's he's a little more sure-handed. He's probably a little uh, a little stronger. Um, I think they're probably about the same in terms of athleticism. But then, uh, like you said before, like Steve's blocking has always been pretty impressive. And if you, I mean that's one of those little things that that doesn't really come up a lot when you're just kind of evaluating a team on a base level. But um, if you're a good blocking running back or receiver, like NFL teams love that. Look at what you know. That's part of the reason why Ezekiel Elliott went number four overall when. You know, most teams aren't touching running backs in the first round. It's not that he was such a good runner, which obviously he ended up being, but he's like an exceptional blocker, an exceptional pass receiver out of the out of the backfield. So when you can be well rounded and and help facilitate the rest of your offense at a, one of those stool positions, it's it's a huge difference. Completely. Um, a little bit more on football before we switch over to basketball, as I'm sure a lot of people always want to talk about. Um, I previewed the special teams unit today um, for those listening yesterday. Um, one thing I wanted to harp on, and I know we've talked about this last season. Dan, how close do you think Sterling Hoffrichter is to taking Cole Murphy's job? Ooh, I don't know. The, I'm a little weary about it just because Murphy had, was, was so so good like two years ago. Yeah. And as we've seen, like if you follow NFL football, obviously kickers can be very volatile from year to year. So, I mean, there's a chance that Murphy ends up just rebounding. Um but obviously, I mean, last two years before that, he averaged what he was like seventy six percent field goal, on field goals, and, and yeah, he was rock solid fifty six percent last year. It just doesn't it doesn't make a ton of sense because we've had some pretty reliable four year kickers. But um, I mean, there's a chance he yo yos, or there's a chance that he just lost a lot of confidence and won't be the same as he was two years ago. Um, luckily, I mean, Hoffrichter can probably get the job done. Um, I I kind of like when we have guys who are focused, but at the college level, like, it's not the craziest thing to have a guy to handle both jobs. Um, and he, he ended up being, after a couple of rocky early starts like Hoffrichter, ended up being a really, really good puncher last year. Um, not as maybe, like, exceptional in terms of killing balls inside the, the 10 as, as uh, called hero Riley Dixon, who is now one of the NFL's finest punters. But, yeah. you know, in, in his own right, like, he had a really, really good first year as full-time starter. Um, he had a better year so, as a first-time starter than Riley did, to be honest. I mean, yeah, that's true. I mentioned this in the the article. Um, better average, more kicks, um, was able to pin more balls inside the twenty um, than Riley was in his first year. And that again, this isn't to disparage Riley Dixon. I think that doing so was sacrilege on the site. But it, it's more just to point out the fact that um, you know Hoffrichter, who had some punting experience in high school, but was brought in as a kicker, really. Um, for him to be able to do that um, in his first like real season as a full time punter, like that that's nothing to really just sort of dismiss. I know there are some Hoffrichter uh, disparagers in the comments, um, and this is a shout out to you guys because you're wrong about Hoffrichter. Uh, he sure. had one bad game. I forget what game it was, but he had one game where he had was it the Columbus was it the U? It was one of the one of the road games, and it was I think it was bad conditions, and he just had he had a bad afternoon where he just. He shanked like two, and it was just a bad day. And, he and then he ended, ended up, up being with great numbers. Yeah, he ended up with great numbers, and he was great for like the last like seven games of the year. Like he was very consistently good. After that, he just like when you're a punter and you have one really glaringly bad day, everybody it's, remembers it. Everyone remembers it because punting is such like a non. It's you know it's not a sexy position at all unless you're Riley Dixon again, <laughs> and not everyone is. 
Right. Like I, I I'm I'm not going to expect Sterling Hoffrichter to start, you know, running these like amazing fakes and hurdling future first round pick Jamal Adams. <laughs> yes. Starting fights with <laughs> starting fights fights with LSU defenders, you know, all, all that. Um, but no, Hoffrichter, Hoffrichter, a lot was put on him. I mean, he, he kicked, he punted 77 times last year. Um, that's not a small number. Um, but again, brought in as a kicker uh, primarily. Um, and a kicker who was pretty good, and I think he was a three-star recruit, so that's actually flies in the face of most of the guys that we end up having um, be our punters and kickers. Uh, usually they're, they're walk-ons, no-star guys. Um, then that, that's a tradition going back a ways uh, for us. I mean, very, few, very few punters and kickers get like, rated at all. Right. Like, they're only a handful. He was one of the biggest ones in the country for sure, and we you know, occasionally go after those. Da- I mean, Ross Trapman, I think, was the last one who was like anywhere near that kind of... Uh, Evaluation heading in, just because there's like maybe like five or ten that get evaluated at all by most services. Wasn't what's his name? How? Oh, who the hell was it? Why can't I remember his name now? You remember the one that got caught on Marshall Street with the beer can? Oh, uh, oh man, uh, it's gonna kill me that I can't remember his name. I'm looking this up. <laughs> Syracuse kicker arrested Syracuse Acropolis. Syracuse Bud Light Pounder. Threatened to fight cops, maybe. Damn it. Uh, oh, Ryan Norton. Ryan Norton. <laughs> Blast from the past. I almost I almost yelled over to my roommate and asked uh, asked if you remember the name. Lionel's uh, But didn't have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ryan Norton. Um, who He was actually pretty well rated, too. I feel like he was a two- or three-star guy. Uh, yeah, he was a big, like, and he was also a, I think he was also, a, like, a, a top lacrosse recruit, too. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, he was From uh, Darden City, yeah, I think, Garden Long City. Island. He was he was a pretty good athlete, uh, which is why he probably eluded the cops for so long that night. <laughs> like that's a, it's not, it, it takes a talent uh, to, to pull off what he did. But yeah, um, I know Hoffrichter's getting some reps at, at, at place kicker in spring practice. So I, I think that this is something that Babers is entertaining, and, and, and as a result, you know Justin Lustig, the uh, the new special teams uh, assistant, is, is entertaining. Um, I, I think Murphy's going to keep the job through the summer, but I think he's going to be on a short leash. I agree. I think, I think they'll want Murphy to have as much, and they'll probably just like leave him in at, at pretty much, unless he's just an absolute disaster during the summer, but, uh, and during the rest of the spring, but they'll probably want to keep him as confident as they can. And, and, you know, hopefully through the first two games, he's, or first however many games before we, uh, dive in here. Uh, he looks pretty pretty decent, but um, it's uh, yeah. I mean, you can't leave points on the table when you're Syracuse and you're playing the schedule we are. So and we left uh, so many on the table. Left a lot on the table. Um, Even some extra points. Yes. So competition, I think, is good. And whoever the best kicker is, like, just let him do it. I don't care if it's Hoffrichter. I don't care if it's uh, Eric Dungey or whomever. I think he get. I think he gets two games to do it. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think if he's fine after two games, he stays with it because I don't think Babers is going to switch kickers right before the LSU game. Like, I feel like he's going to want to... Like, if, if Murphy shows he's capable through the first two, he's going to keep him through the first four no matter what. There, there's no possible way you want to put Hoffrichter into his first, potentially first, in-game kicking action at In LSU. Death Valley. Yeah, that, yeah that, that's just... a terrible idea. And hopefully, hopefully the first couple of games like get us some easy field goal opportunities and extra point opportunities because part of the problem, like a couple of times with Murphy last year, he was just and I, I love, he was put in really bad situations. And I, I appreciate when Babers is aggressive and whatnot. Um, I wish he was more aggressive rather than having struggling Cole Murphy kicking like fifty-four yarders. Yeah, like of course like, you're gonna miss that. Right. Like wait until he's you know really feeling it. But there were so there were like two or three games last year where I had zero confidence in Murphy making a kick. And I, I, I like felt bad because you know it seems like it's such a such a head driven. It's like golf. It's like the, the closest you get to like a, a golfer in in football. Like it's it's very mechanical and it's very uh, especially in the dome. Like the, you don't have too many uh, outside factors. You have you know the rush, but for the most part, you know it usually doesn't have an impact. So um, yeah, hopefully hopefully he gets it, you know gets it straight. And if we get the Cole Murphy we had two years ago, I think we'll all be pretty happy. Yeah, I would have to agree. Also, before we get to halftime, and while we're still on special teams, um, one of the other big questions I had was around 
whether Sean Riley can do anything remotely as well as Brisley Esteem, but especially in the punt return game. Um, Brisley was always considered a very good return man. I don't think people realize just how much of a good return man he was. Um, and I think hopefully the NFL, somebody realizes that when he probably ends up being an unrestricted free agent. Um, if you look at the averages that Brisley's put up, even without the, 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 the touchdowns that he managed to score a couple of years ago, um, Esteem was one of the consistently you know, best, I, I feel like, return men. He, he knew how to run in traffic. He knew how to follow blocks. Um, he knew how to make the most out of, out of returns. And best of all, he knew, he knew when to not try his luck. Um, that wasn't always the case for him. I felt like earlier in his career, he sometimes tested Faye a little too much. Um, but I feel like if you're a return man, it's kind of part of the deal. Um, but yeah, I, I think in, in his latter two, two and a half years or so, um, he definitely was probably one of the, I'd, I'd argue, 10 best return men in the country. Um, and the, the numbers do bear that out. Um, if you look at Bill Connolly's kind of special teams rankings, um, and especially when he was focusing on you know punt return efficiency. Yeah, I mean, Brisbane was just a monster last year. And we, I think we... We all had an idea that he could be really good after the, the Texas Bowl uh, return, which feels like it was forever ago. It was. But um, <laughs> he just never really got a ton of opportunities. Like the the team for for years now has struggled um, getting their punt returners chances to actually make plays. Uh, last year was definitely better, um, and Brisley obviously showed it. Like he he was awesome at that spot last year, and, and field position, you know, with, between him and, and Hoffrichter was like actually a relative strength. Uh, I think we saw some kickoff issues, but uh, we were one of the worst but, uh, field position teams in the, co- in the country last year. But it was yeah, that was in- almost entirely was, because of kickoffs and the fact that we just didn't really we didn't really do anything to help ourselves there. There's nothing to do with Briz. It was kickoffs. It was kick returns. Where, um, like you said uh, in the piece, Sean Riley like had a slightly better average, but I, neither neither die was great there. Um, and I think that might be more of a blocking issue than anything. And just uh, Baber's aggressive play calling uh, is going to open up some, you know, spots where you're going to leave yourself in vulnerable positions uh, going forward on fourth down at midfield, etc. Um, but overall, I mean, I think punt returns were, were a definite uh, stark improvement last year. Um, Riley to, to match esteem is going to be it's going to be you know a lot, but I, I do think he's you know he's a similar type player. He's you know compact, fast. Um, Different type Tyson. of runner, though. I feel like he's got to add. Yeah, I mean, he's got to add weight, and I'm sure he is yeah, this off sure. season. But if he doesn't, like, Esteem could take a hit. Well, Esteem was like a uh, like a low key, like kind of a bulldog. Like he was really, really, uh, pretty muscular for his size. Like yeah, he was down he runner. Was, just a, I mean, he was. Yeah, I mean, he was obviously he was a stockier guy, but it didn't get right. away from his speed. Exactly, and, and Riley's definitely more of like a classic like step back build. Um, where he's gonna probably have to make more people miss, where Esteem could actually like, like you said, shed an arm tackle and 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 didn't not really slow down too much. So uh, we'll see how it goes. I'm not, I'm super interested in, in Shy Cullen uh, being in oh, the midst here. That's huge. I, I, as I, a I, linebacker, um, and I know he's like a little more slight, uh, but he's you know he almost he's reminds me more guy. Yeah, right he's uh, more like Esteem. His build, I mean, he's bigger than Esteem. Uh, he's taller, but in terms of like he's he's very muscular and and. Uh, and obviously he's a fast player too. There's no, he wouldn't be back there. And he, I remember high school, he was really like a four or five guy. So uh, not every team is linebackers in the midst of kick return. So I'm, I'm super intrigued by that. I don't know if it'll actually amount to anything, but um, the fact that he's back there at all makes me like think that there's something there. I, I feel like a lot of it's the blocking. I know he's, he did such a great job last year um, on special teams with blocking. <laughs> Uh, and tackling too, but I think the blocking actually became one of his fortes. Um, I feel like if if we're still getting the ball primarily to, to to Sean Riley, if he can if he can stick close enough to Cullen, who should be able to to lay a couple kind of gunners out, and, and you know guys who were guys who were specifically employed to, to quickly get down the field and make that stop, I feel like we could have something on our hands. It really just depends on you know. Can can Riley follow his blocks, and 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 how much more, how much improvement can he see year over year? Yeah, and and hopefully having lost it on the staff now uh, pays dividends because we've had so many years where we haven't really had a dedicated special teams coach, and I know there were question marks about bringing in another guy from the D two level, but you know 
it, he's he's coached special teams a decent amount, and he's coached them um, at the D one level. So I, I hopefully he's uh, you know bringing him in has some some immediate impacts. I, I I don't think we've had a have we had like a, a legitimate like special teams oriented, especially I know he's, he has some other duties too, but um, Bob Casillo was probably the last one where it was like that was his main thing. Yeah, Bob Casillo, the guy that everyone confuses with me all the time when they're angry on the <laughs> Casillo, <laughs> the guy yeah. who, who appears on the radio every three years to rip the program for some reason. Which whatever, man, you do you. As opposed to John Casillo, who appears on the radio slightly more often than that to rip the program. <laughs> I'm pretty well measured on. I mean, I, I don't even, <laughs> when, you, when you think about it, I don't even rip the program that much on this program, and I run this program. It's true. I, I'm I'm fairly optimistic. I'm probably more optimistic on here than I am in writing. Um, but anyway, on that note, we will uh, we can move on to some halftime. Uh, Dan, what have you been drinking? Uh, so I got back into it a little bit, not too too much, but I did get to go to a pretty cool place in Brooklyn last week called Ked and Lantern Brewing, which is uh, a brew pub in Greenpoint, uh, very close to Tourist, which we've brought up before. Um, yeah, uh, you have to love Tourist if you enjoy a good beer. And I haven't been over there in a while and need to do that. Um, so I had a bunch of their their in-house stuff. Uh, I had their, uh, their We Are Not Animals, which I believe I had to look up to what it was, um, aside from just the ratings I gave. Uh, yeah, that was a sour. So that was delicious. It was sour, a little bit of saltiness. Um, it's a really nice blend uh, of flavors there. Taking like, Had a couple a other spot too, just in general. I feel like the aesthetic. Have you been there before? Yeah, that was. Uh, it's actually one of the. That's where I went before I went to Taurus the last time I went there. Um, okay, it's like right across the street. Yeah, yeah right across the street. Sense. Hung out there. I know the decor is great. All the old beer cans and shit. Yeah, the old beer tans was fun. Like, all the old, like, crappy beer. Uh, I think there were a couple Schaefer's in the wall, so <laughs> shout out to Scott. Um, I also had some uh, other half uh, stats and stacks. I had uh, a Cert Till from a brewery I can't pronounce and won't even try, but you, John can probably drop that in in the, uh, in the comments. Uh, what else did I have? Oh, and I had uh, a Tropical Torpedo from Sierra Nevada, which is, I didn't love it the first time I had it. It's kind of grown on me a bit. I buy that. I uh, I don't even know if I've given it a shot yet. I think it's just because it's everywhere. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's pretty standard now. Yeah. Um. Hmm. Some things that I've had lately. I was at that uh, that that bro festival as I d- detailed last week. So there was a uh, was quite a bit of stuff. Some forty one was actually a lot of fun. Admittedly, like I I didn't think I was gonna enjoy like hearing all those stupid songs as much as I did. It was uh, it was pretty fun. Um, yeah, I saw the videos from there. It says, I mean, the the luchador, and then the, <laughs> the some. It was just a lot of st- a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff, all kind of kind of gathered in one. Uh, see some things I had. Uh, I had artifacts. They're down in Orange County. They're Trigger Finger IPA. Had the uh, Ska Brewing uh, Modus Mandarina. For those who've had the uh, Modus Operandi um, IPA, this is the uh, Mandarin orange one because god forbid anyone can make an ipa without fruit in it now and and like you have to do like eight different editions of it oh yeah like every single well i mean ballast point created a market for it and and people just keep on drinking it so that's going to continue um i had the uh el goza from avery uh that one was excellent and really good for a uh wasn't like super warm out but you know by the beach and everything it's nice to do some of that. Um, had a uh, last one standing uh, session IPA from uh, Rip Beer Company. Might actually be the best session IPA I've ever had. Um, had a Yes Chef from uh, Chapman Crafted. They're actually down uh, a couple miles away from where my wife grew up. Uh, been to the brewery there. Uh, it was an IPL, but all their stuff is pretty good. Um, Fall Brewings, one in San Diego. Had their Green Hat IPA. Had uh, Sorry, I'm going to talk a little bit of shit about this brewery. Barley Forge, I like a lot of their stuff. Uh, this beer, not so much. It was a uh, Nam Nam, was a uh, mango Hefeweizen. Uh, you would think interesting and like cool and all. It tasted like uh, orange cough syrup. I was just not not pleased at all by uh, by that experience. Um, what else did I have? I went to I grabbed some stuff from Noble over there too. I had the Lemon Drop Showers. It's the double IPA series that they do featuring one type of hop. 
Uh, also had the uh, Noble Ale Works uh, Hazy IPA uh, Gentle Ribbing. And that was mostly it. Um, had some other things too, but that's on Untapped. Um, also grabbed, uh, since Beachwood does a lot more distributing and bottling now that they purchased the third location. Um, actually, sorry, fourth location, technically. Um, I grabbed a bottle of their Citraholic, uh, one of my favorite IPAs uh, brewed around here. So that was an enjoyable way to wind things down on Sunday. And that was all the beer. Yeah, I think I'm heading over to Single Cut for the first time in a couple months tomorrow. Yeah. Like, tentative plan, so I'll just see what they... I mean, they, I feel like they always have something new that I haven't had whenever I go, because they, they just try a lot of stuff that gets, like, small batch. So, I'm excited for that, because, you know, I've been there in a bit, and one of my favorite breweries, so... Yeah, I love Single Cut. We'll have to report back tomorrow, next week. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so, I guess some basketball. We are a... Uh... We're an equal opportunity um, discussion zone here, and we'd like to talk about basketball as much as possible until we inundate you with football for upwards of six months when the season's only three. Um, Dan, it seems like we're in the running for uh, Tremont Waters. That's a really good thing. I know there were some doubts about whether or not the former Georgetown commit was uh, in our sights, but Syracuse really needs a guard. Um, Howard Washington's obviously one option. And a guy who is is in the 2017 class. That said, we do need more guards, um, and I think Waters is one of maybe a couple that we can still add for this class since we do have open scholarships available. Yeah, I, I, he's an interesting fit. Um, he's not an obvious system guy, uh, but we've seen smaller guards make good impacts. Obviously, uh, John Dillon, you know, was up and down this year, but we would have been a much. I think we would have been a worse off team if we didn't have him, and he's. You know, similar stature to Dylan. Um, obviously, pretty you know highly sought after recruit, good athlete. Um, so, uh, I mean, if they can get him, like go get him. He's a uh, one of the better players in the market. Uh, obviously, not expected to be, but all the fallout at Georgetown has led to this. Um, the most interesting thing is that there seems to be like uh, in disagreement over like who is actually involved. Uh, I know we were listed by one of the writers that put out a Waters thing today, but then we weren't on other ones and. There was, like, stuff about, like, who knows? I don't know if he has a full release from his NLI because Creighton's supposed to be involved, but if Georgetown doesn't release him to the Big East, then Creighton, you know, who knows? I I, I think he's getting a full one, so they would be able to in that case. And there's word of, like, Duke and Kansas, and it, it just it seems kind of murky. Um, but working under the impression that uh, we are involved, I, I would definitely say, like, he's worth a shot, especially given the current guard situation. Um, obviously... There are, you know, with the zone and everything, I think you you would like to have like a, a you know sits for Michael Carter Williams rangy guard, but uh, I also want to store like a couple times this summer this year year, and he can definitely do that. So, um, I mean, I think it would be a, a pretty nice unexpected recruiting win if they can grab him here late in the cycle. Yeah, that'd be nice for me. Um, I know today was actually signing day, but basketball doesn't work the same as football. There's a lot of signings that happen after signing day. Um, there's a lot of signings that happened two years before signing day as well. Um, I know you mentioned that he's more of a scorer and a shooter. Uh, as much as it would pain me and as much as those teams didn't necessarily do anything in the tournament, um, I wouldn't mind us looking a little bit more like the teams from like 05 through 2009 for a season or two, if we could make it work for, for a tournament team. Um, for those that don't remember... Two of those teams made the tournament, uh, one of them by way of a miracle run at Mathensburg Garden. The other, uh, they were already good enough to make the tournament, but then obviously the six-overtime game um, and, and their own nice little run in the Big East tournament got them through, the 8 9 team. Um, but yeah, all those, all those teams that, that featured, actually all four of those teams featured Eric Devendorf in some way, shape, or form, um, and all four of those teams uh, did not play much defense Love to shoot the lights out, and were entertaining as hell to watch, even if they were also uh, equally frustrating and uh, and middling at times against elite competition. For flawed teams, um, I think the 09 team was uh, a lot. Of, I mean, that was my freshman year. It was a lot of fun. Um, it wasn't like the classic Syracuse team, but it could store with about anyone, and it could also give up like 110 points to Seton Hall or whatever they did that one time. <laughs> Uh, so I'd rather not do that. Um, but like you said, like 
you know, if if we get to the tournament and we are, uh, I think we're always going to be kind of a tough out based on our style. And um, I don't think necessarily bringing in like one sits foot point guard makes us, you know, a team that can't play the zone, especially if he's, you know, if he's in the system for a couple of years, he might not be uh, perfect, but, you know, we, we, we've had some success on defense with shorter point guards. Like Tyler Ennis isn't like a huge guy no, and he played really good. Yeah, sits two at most, and he was a, a solid defensive player um, in one year in the zone. Like, he learned it pretty quick. He's putting um, work at the I, Lakers now. Yeah, he had, like, what, 18 points the other day, I think? I think he's I think he's topped his career high now, like, two of the last, like, four games. And I, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that he's going to have a 15-year career now, but I think he might have earned himself at least a, a, a longer look um, this offseason. I look forward to the... Uh, Laker hot takes uh, when they fall out of the top four and lose their protected pick um, of Tyler. Tyler Ennis is the reason why the Lakers rebuild is falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? You know who's going to read those for sure? Uh, James Dolan. And you know what he's going to oh. do is he's going to give Tyler Ennis a three-year, $18 million contract. I hope he does. Don't make your money, Tyler. I No. Sorry, Tyler. You can make that money somewhere else. Go. No, you know who you know who James Dolan is done to sign though. You know who he's gonna throw like forty five million at this summer? Oh god. You know who I'm talking about. There's a lot of people you need to be talking about. This is a Syracuse podcast. Oh Christ. One Dion ba- oh, waiters. Dion, Dion, Dion has become I mean the, 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 every single year there's like a like who's the nixiest uh free agent who who could get just grossly overpaid and 45 million is, is not even touching the amount that Dolan's going to throw at him um, I'm predicting something around three years and I'm going to say three years at 54 million dollars total you know what's amazing is so few players that bet on themselves with these contracts win Except him. And Deion Waiters bet on himself and won. That's literally it's his unbe- entire life. Is, it's is just- unbelievable. He signed with the Heat for what a million, three million dollars for a one-year deal when he probably could have gotten like he could have gotten like a, a medium-ish contract from from uh, if the Thunder kept him right. And he yeah. turned it down. He lost out for year one. Like everyone thought that Waiters basically screwed himself for a while, and then he turned into a cult hero in Miami. Was it basically would have gotten them into the playoffs if he didn't get hurt. Um, obviously he had some help, uh, but you know, he was like their best player or their second best player for the entirety of their resurgent run. Uh, and he's going to make some money next summer, which is unbelievable. And I'm very happy for him because yeah, he is goes up again. He, yeah. He, right. he, he's banking in, on, he's banking on himself in a way that very few players have ever done successfully. It almost never works. It, I feel like 95% of the time when a player bets on himself the way that Dion did, it fails miserably or it's like. They end up losing like a couple million at, at best, and Dion's gonna have made so much more money from doing this, and it's it's hilarious and good for him. Um, yeah. As long as, as long as the Knicks aren't the ones giving him all that money, <laughs> it's fine. And that's but, the second thought: is imagine Dion getting placed in playing, having to play the triangle offense. Oh Christ! <laughs> like, well, to be fair, imagine anyone in the NBA right now trying to play the triangle offense. I, I, Especially I, don't to, I, don't, I don't have to imagine anyone trying to play the triangle offense, Dan. I, I I've watched it. <laughs> And it is not pleasant. It's it's not good. I uh, I would like it to go away. Um, speaking of also like tangentially, this isn't really about Syracuse anymore. Um, I know I wrote that article last Friday about uh, Wichita State joining the AAC, giving a glimpse of some sort of alternate reality for Syracuse. And while we don't really need to talk about that, it is worth talking about how Wichita State may or may not be able to compete in the American Athletic Conference. Um, I know I wrote an article last week, no, this week, sorry, um, over on the comeback talking about um, Wichita State's ability versus uh, realignment teams since, like, 2012, no, 2013, sorry. So they were, like, 60 teams. I think only 18 of them improved their record. Um, Even less made the tournament um, in the immediate aftermath. Um, But I think Wichita State's going to be the exception here. Um, Top 20 Ken Palm team for the last five years. Um, obviously, they have a decent amount of money backing them um, that few other mid-major programs or programs making that sort of you know big shift from a like true mid-major to a 
at least sort of power conference. Um, have at their disposal. Yeah, that Coke brother money. Yeah, that uh, that Coke money is not a uh, d- does not go quietly into the night. Um, it will be there for them. Uh, the Shockers are going to need some of that as well as uh, some increased TV revenues and NCAA tournament credits uh, to offset the increased travel costs. I doubt the AAC is in position to subsidize that for them um, the way that other conferences might for other teams. Um, I, I feel like this is really critical for the American Athletic Conference. Like, if this is their, if these teams are really where their fate lies and based on what's happened with realignment, it seems like that's going to be the case, at least for the next three to four years at minimum. Um, just look at the NCAA tournament credits. Um, the last three years, uh, the American Athletic Conference has only taken home 11 tournament credits total. Um, in 2014, they took home 11. And in 2013, which was a holdover from the Big East, they took home 19. Uh, those 19 credits are gone uh, starting next year. The 11 will be gone um, the year after that. So that conference suddenly, all, all the money that was headed their way is, is largely gone, and they're, they become far more exposed to being a, right now, three-team league, to be honest. Uh, I mean, it becomes Wichita State, Cincinnati, um, not 14. Wichita State, Cincinnati, UConn, and SMU. I really want to know who you're forgetting between UConn and SMU. <laughs> I know. I was, I, 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 was, I was heavily considering leaving UConn out, but I won't. Because oh, that's still, what I was hoping. Yeah, there's still a better brand. So I, I'm going with a – there's a big four. And then, and then you look behind, beyond that. There's um, Memphis and Temple, who historically are a very good program. So Wichita State isn't the only – person who needs the team that needs to pull their weight but if Wichita State does pull their weight and then some you do at least help mitigate the fact that Temple and and Memphis have kind of fallen on hard times as program at at the least opportune time yeah I mean they're they're joining at a good time because they should be good next year I mean you're drawing in uh shout out to our friends uh no escalators uh I mean you're getting all those South Dakota fans um to the AAC which is just huge (laughs) um uh, they should be good. Memphis right now is spiraling out of control. I think like half the roster is transferring. UConn, like a quarter of their roster is transferring. Um, I don't think you can expect SMU and Cincinnati to be as good as they were this year every year. Uh, so well, I think been, it's SMU has been one of the top three teams in the conference since they since they joined. Yeah, I just meant like nationally, like SMU. Oh, yeah. Like they ran to a buzz on the tournament, but like they should have. I mean, a lot a lot of people thought they were they would be the team that knocked off Duke. Like they were a legitimate team, um, and I don't know, I don't know how they're going to keep on. I mean, what they look like going down the road, just because like Larry Brown kind of built that team with his his wheelings and dealings before he uh, got caught up by the NCAA for the 18th time. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's. It's it's a it's one bit of conference that's kind of built on you know just getting whatever brand is kind of out there and just throwing it in and asking questions later and Wichita is probably the biggest example of that. Um, I mean, they for a time were going to try to grab Boise and San Diego State was like penciled in. So um, it, the, the conference makes no geographic sense now. Now it it you know has a football basketball split, although it already kind of did with Navy being in the football league. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, I think they need to really hope that Craig Marshall stays there because that's the big question for them. Obviously, Wichita has some resources that we had, we talked about more so than most basketball onlys, and they've been good enough now for long enough that they they probably have a little more staying power than like some random other team popping up for a couple of years. But if Craig Marshall leaves and they don't make a big hire after that, it could be serious. It could be an issue. Right. Yeah, and, and that's I guess the the bigger problem for. You know, you look at whether it's American Athletic Conference going out on a limb and getting Wichita, or um, I guess the same thing sort of holds true for Creighton and McDermott. Um, you know, these are these are programs well outside the footprint. Um, actually, think Creighton's a little bit closer just because of where Marquette's located, um, but nonetheless, still like kind of going out on a limb from your traditional um, footprint. Um, and for those who aren't ACC fans yelling something about Louisville right now, Louisville is, is just as much in the traditional footprint as anybody else based on culture alone. Um, and Louisville obviously has a, a long, long history of success in basketball and is probably one of the most basketball-crazed cities in America, if not the most basketball-crazed city in America. 
Um, so banking on that is very different than than expanding, you know, every, every inch of your your conference borders to just to add a market or, or, or a temporary brand name. Yeah, Louisville sl- slid into the ACC about as seamlessly as, as anyone ever has in one of these big conference moves. Like, probably more easily than Pitt or Syracuse did, to be honest. And, and geographically, like, they're not that crazy in ter- compared to, like, half of the a- ACC or the AAC is way, not, way, more, way crazier. Um, and, I mean, Maryland in the Big Ten makes less sense than Louisville in the ACC. So, um, yeah. I mean, I almost feel like at this point, the AAC, like, geographic just isn't a factor at all just because none of it is congruent at all the fact that their their headquarters are still in rhode island is hilarious <laughs> and and i don't they can have i mean if they, if they want greensboro like you guys can have can we just trade that's fine i, I don't I, think rhode island makes a lot of sense for the acc any either but i'd rather be in providence no, i'm fine to go to providence let's we can go back or to newport doing, or wherever it is we can go back to doing the uh the lobster eating contest the clam the, the bake yeah the whole clam bake the whole deal um the fact that the American Athletic Conference still does that is the dumbest. Just like the, the absolute dumbest thing. Because like you have no you have no right to that clam bake. <laughs> you don't respect the tradition of the Big East clam bake. Yeah, like like uh, imagine if you're like some you know kid that plays at SMU or Houston. Well, let's go with Houston. SMU is private school. Some kid that that, that grows up in Houston goes to Houston. And then you walk in expecting like a crawfish boil, and then like, and then these giant quote unquote giant crawfish end up just dropped in front of you. I, I'm very disappointed in you because you're talking about crawfish boils and AAC teams that don't make any sense, and you didn't go with Tulane. Yes, but you know what? That whole South Texas area and crawfish like Tulane kids. At least there's probably some Tulane kids that like. Had vacation, yeah, from vacationed up there. Like used kids true. that go to Houston are, are from Houston. Are, are very much from Houston. That's true. And that's may not fair. have ever left Houston until they got to school. Shout out to Tom Herman. Yeah, shout out to Tom Herman. Rest in peace in, in Austin. I, I yes. saw I saw how he embarrassed himself in that locker room, and he's not going to be long for that. Oh party. God, <laughs> that wall just defeated him. <laughs> that locker. Oh Christ. Um, before we leave, uh, one more thing I wanted to bring up. I don't know if you saw that Virginian Pilot article from what was it, last week. It kind of started getting into what we were talking about here with the expanding borders of these Group of Five conferences. And talking about the Group of Five might have to consolidate even into one league and just kind of, you know, split things along geography at this point because of, you know, all the, all the overlap between Conference USA and American Athletic Conference and Sunbelt. Um, nothing makes sense. And, and they're starting to get concerned um, about costs and the fact that nobody cares about watching their leagues, which, I mean, I'll watch football all the time. I know you will. But, yeah, I, I would assume that when you have no geographic identity, when you have no school-to-school identity, no real rivalries um, for, for those, those leagues, especially CUSA and, uh, and Sunbelt right now, um, that you might have to, to act drastically, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I actually, I remember seeing it. I never went back and fully read it, but it does make some sense. Um, I think, like, maybe, I think the Mac has almost branded itself well enough, and oh, it's just, great. like, it's it's such a, it's not, it's never going to be big, but they're they're kind of at peace with it. Um, they don't have a lot of movement within their league, and, like, schools don't really leave. Like, occasionally they add one and, and lose one, but it's not, like, their, their but core. they add, like, stupid ones. They always add ones that are gonna, that are destined to leave anyway. Right, like, their core, the core Mac is not going to move. Like, it just is what it is. It's very happy being itself. Which which makes it like pretty tenable, and then they kind of own the midweek stuff and everything and match and and they go about it well. Um, CUSA and Sunbelt definitely are the two because they're like a little more geographically nebulous. They're always moving uh, membership around. Um, I almost wonder if we could have like a a uh, like a, a relegation type thing where they're two like leagues and they just have like the sub league and then the the main league and just move move schools around and and try to get, like, the best the best product for the top league as they can every year or dope. something. Although it would be dope. The thing is, like, from a branding perspective, it would be a nightmare. Um, also, I, I would – like, I wonder – I know you and I could probably name most of the teams, if not all of them, in each conference. I'd, I'd be curious to see, like, if we went into the, the noon Slack room right now, how many people without looking would be able to name even half of one conference or the other? 
and like oh i would be able to 100 percent of them I, w- I would probably just like i'd probably forget like a couple from each which would annoy me oh i'd get um it. I, I, I yeah i know you, you definitely would <laughs> I, um, i'd be hell-bent on it <laughs> uh yeah i mean it, it would definitely be tough um I mean, it almost adds more credence to the, uh, from a couple months ago, the uh, Group of Five playoff discussion, like having their own thing, which, like, I get the resistance to, but, like, pragmatically, even if they don't want to totally opt out of the college football playoff, like, as a possibility, like, you're not getting in unless something crazy happens. I don't know why they don't try to find some kind of agreement that would allow for, like, the once-in-a-generation Boise State team that finishes fourth to get in there, while also creating something fun for those schools that can be something more attainable um, rather than just like, oh, we're going to go to the Bahamas Bowl, which is fun. Like, I like the Bahamas Bowl, but being able to play for something that, like, more people can grasp onto, I think, would be a good thing for those leagues. Well, like, what, what do you think would be their bargaining power if they went as a, like, block of 65, 70 schools to a television network and said, we're not all going to be on TV, but... ESPN, you can relegate this many games each week to digital. You're going to get, like, and, and, and you know what? If they got creative and said, here, we'll do, we'll lock in weeks one through four with non-conference games. Then you get five and six are flex scheduling. So based on previous years, win-loss, we get these games. Then you have rivalry games week seven and eight, uh, or like you seven through ten, basically. So then you allow for buys, things like that. And then the end of the season um, just becomes matchup-based, dependent on how you perform to that. I mean, and everyone's locked in already. Like, you're going to get a home game. You're going to get a home game against TBD opponent. And then Yeah, I mean, it would require a lot of, like, pill-swallowing on, like, the whole amateurism thing. Um, like, you know, not knowing if you're going to be flying to uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky, or... Uh, Murphy's Borough or whatever on a given well, you week. Them, you could put them into pods. You could put them in geographic pods, and at least yeah. be... I mean, they could definitely do it. There's just, like, always a lot of resistance to anything like that that's like, oh, it's about the they academics. Just, we know it's not. Yeah, like, it's definitely and, not. And just, look at the NCAA tournament. It's very much not. Um, but there's a lot of hand-wringing about anything like that whenever. And then they do it, and then everyone's happy immediately. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there just needs... Especially if, if we continue on the wave of, you know, eventually players are going to be paid in some form. Um, there needs to be some kind of financial solvency for these little schools. Like, that is a concern. Um, or else it's the, the gap is going to probably, I mean, th- that's the one scare tactic everyone has about paying players. Like, the gap's going to widen. Like, it will probably to an extent, although Alabama's not really struggling to beat out uh, UAB for anyone as much as they'd like to tell you they are, uh, based on how they try to shut under that program. But, um, at the same time, like, if, if schools are mandated to pay these players or, you know, there's there's a thought of, like, a player will go, you know, be uh, a third-string guy in Alabama and maybe never play because he'll get some stipend um, versus, like, basically being a preferred walkout or something. Um, they do need to find a way to, to make these a little more... They need to find a way to make as much money as they can on these smaller leagues, and hopefully they, they aren't afraid to get creative with it because there really isn't any downside. Like, you're not giving up some grand traditions of you know, Texas State versus Texas San Antonio. <laughs> there just isn't that much to it. No, there isn't. Um, that might be a good place to end us. Um, I think that's a fun conversation. It's one that I think we should definitely continue this offseason. Um, we're getting there, folks. Uh, once Syracuse lacrosse wraps up, um, that men's and women's lacrosse, um, we will be in full-fledged offseason. We'll be previewing other conferences and other non-Syracuse items as well as Syracuse items. But yeah, I, I would definitely say we have plenty more to talk about on that front and many more um, come this summer. Yeah, I mean, I think one conversation to have, and probably not until a, a freer week, is um, even. I think it's even a bigger conversation with basketball. Obviously, the basketball league mid-majors aren't as big a thing. But like with, with Wichita State, you can already see a little bit of consolidation. And those schools move a lot. Like People don't even realize how much they move. So uh, I, I, would, I wouldn't be shocked if we see like bigger... Um, more consolidated basketball leagues, especially as you know, you struggle with with getting more than one team in the league from a from a conference that used to be maybe like a three or four bid league. Sounds like an article, Dan. You can have it. Feel free to pitch it out. Uh-oh. <laughs>
just don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Dan, thank you as always for joining. Much obliged. Yes, yes. Fantastic. The Mets won, so I'm in a good mood. Yeah, that's that's always a big plus around here. Uh, the Rangers also won, so I am happy. Um, so everyone, thanks for tuning in to Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk, on whatever other service you may listen to us on, and go Orange. Go Orange. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.